they were saying they have to go through 170 different vendors to do software updates to their cars. And what this screams to me is the concept of default laziness. I do not want to do that work. Ergo, I outsource it. Welcome to the Startup Defense. Today, I have Michael Meyer. Michael, you're an active duty officer in the Air Force. Is that correct? Uh, Non-commission, but yes. Non-commission. You're also a punching bag for innovation. That's what LinkedIn says. Okay. So I'm excited for this conversation because I want to get into what that could possibly mean. So for our audience, can you tell us who you are, what you're about, what you're passionate about right now? Michael Meyer, I'm active duty Air Force. Uh, I've been in uh, 12 years. I kind of come from a very regimented part of the military. Uh, my primary FSC for the longest time was weapons. And uh, a lot of people who were like, how did you become a product of that career field? Because it is very by the book, very procedural, step-by-step checklists. You have to know everything the back of your hand. But what really kind of made me into the you know, self-proclaimed punching bag was going to aircraft test development and evaluation. In this world, they finally started asking me questions of what I thought. It was kind of groundbreaking to me as a military member. They don't really ask those kind of questions normally. So that's when the path forged to be an innovator full-time is I really wanted to make change. So in 2015, we added innovation to one of the pillars of the NDS, the National Defense Strategy and Pathworks and Spark Cells were a brainchild of that addition. I was kind of there for the foundings of it. And then fast forward, now seven years in the innovation space, I finally uh, sit as a futures airman uh, in the Air Force at Shepard Air Force Base. And my whole focus is accelerating change and um, creating holistic solutions for defense. It must have been an unbelievable experience to see one, the innovation doctrine bubble up and then it's really just getting started with it, but to see it actually put into place and then put into practice. I'd like to jump into that, but in my mind, I think of your past position as the checklist. I've spoken with many active duty people and I think when I think of Air Force and then certain uh, naval groups as well, the kings of checklists, right? Training to checklists, very meticulous, lots of manuals to read, lots to go through. Before we jump into innovation doctrine, is what was that personal transformation like to go from a checklist culture to kind of an iterative, more risky, like, let's go, let's experiment and find out innovation culture? Uh, no, I would akin that to a generational difference because it's my generation that is now transcending to seats of power inside the military. So I would have to say just a mindset because when I joined the military in 2011, 10 years post 9-11, and we have a different sight picture of how we saw the world for a long time. And since Vietnam, the military kind of stayed in a certain state. We were focused on survival and processes instead of accelerating because our adversaries were political in nature and not a show of force. During World War One and Two, it was a show of force. We were against the very brunt of reality, a very strong force. So we had to innovate really quick 
and build our industrial base quick. So we had a really good nationalism present. We had a big drive. So we were very iterative because we had to. Um, Post-World War, during divestiture, and then even during Vietnam, our mission changed to survival, not defeating an emissary, but actually just surviving um, and hoping that politics went out because we were actually at war against culture as much of a reality that is. I mean, Vietnam and the post 9-11 environment was a war against a culture of people that sought a certain way, not a city-state, right? Like it wasn't going against Germany or some great adversary. It was against thoughts, which thoughts are obviously more powerful than a conglomerate, but it's really hard to fight that as a defense agency. So you really focus towards survival of your assets and how do you produce survival? That's the real process. But when I joined, we were really starting to head in a different direction because the war has slowed down, right? We're, we're more in a survival state, but now we're at a point where we've recognized that we're kind of in a fault. We have old aircraft, we have old fighters, the Cold War isn't here anymore, and we have all these assets around. Well, what's our adversaries doing? Well, they're not doing much either. They're kind of sitting on also Cold War technology. So how do we, how do we begin to enhance our industrial base again? And how do we become more lethal because Congress is going to keep divesting us in this peacetime? So that mentality coupled with the mentality of the 90s generation, I think really was the spark to it all. Because when I came in, again, it was just very checklist by process, manuals, AFIs. But there was a lot of, you guys have new eyes on this, so I want your opinion. And I think that was the spark behind it all. And then once they flat out came out and said four years later, hey, innovation is key to our defense strategy, it started to find early adapters. And I kin myself to that because I enjoy solving problems. So I just became a part of the beast that was required because of that. And as a result of that kind of change in doctrine or change in language that's been pushed out, then we've gotten things like DIU and AFWorks and new contract vehicles. And so now there's a lot more industry involvement as well. What is interesting and I want to get your perspective on this, is that there's certain people in the startup world where they view like, okay, the commercial world is going to come in and can just revolutionize XYZ, information structure, uh, robotics, sensor systems in DOD, and like da 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 because the technology exists. But it's a cultural mismatch as well. And, and since there are entrepreneurs or innovators inside the culture shifting, that's become more and more possible where there can be this industry and DOD collaboration because before the risk aversion is so opposed to the way commercial efforts work that it wouldn't matter. And so I'm curious to know like your perspective on that because as you internally become more innovative, you can be more of a connector to outside innovators as well. Is that like a fair assumption? No, it's completely a fair assumption. The big delineation is what game were you playing? And I mean that like in the nicest way possible. Cause like as a 
innovator on the outside, right? And this is kind of how I see, you know, the startup world, right? Silicon Valley is a system of businesses from birth to death, and the ideas travel to the next birth. They play a finite game. That company is standing up, it's dissolving, right? But people and the ideas just go to the next. And it's kind of this birth-death cycle that allows things to be fresh and accelerating it. Because anytime there's too much bloat to the process, it dies and collapses in and out itself. It's kind of, you know, the cradle of life for innovation, right? It iterates through generational information. The people don't change much because they just get a new job, but they're really much playing a finite game. Meanwhile, with defense, there is no death cycle, right? We need solutions that bridge decades with sustainment. So that's where it gets kind of interesting as an innovator, because now it's not as much as the value proposition in startups sometimes is like, oh, wow, that's cool. Let's do it. Meanwhile, internally in defense, it's, well, that's really cool. But what problem does it actually solve? There's a much larger jump to proving value, but they're also in a unique circumstance that industry doesn't have is we can align our values with actual passion without tethering money to it. So I think that's kind of where it's a little bit more interesting because when you have like those discussions in innovation, as a company, you know, what do we value? We value X, Y, Z, but those values have to be tethered to dollars. No matter what anybody likes to say, I mean, that's that's the result. You have to make money. It has to be profitable. So there's a balancing act. But internally in defense, we don't have to have a balancing act. All we have to have is what value does that give us? And does it offset something else we're spending on? It doesn't have to make us money. If anything, it just needs to make us spend less or the same. And then everything else can be aligned in passion. I think that's where some of the beauty is, you know, where we can kind of connect a little bit. I've seen also that since you're playing into such a larger system that has larger, higher value problems, the same equivalent in a commercial setting, the same brain power or investment brought over into a DOD size problem. It just generally has an unfair multiple. If it can be quantified, but yeah, otherwise it makes sense. It's a capability or capacity argument, right? Is if we're spending X to do this now, can we do 5X of that with the same amount of capital deployed or if we are enabling 100 missions, can we enable 150 missions? Or there, there's always some metric that we can play with with innovation, but there's no direct profit motive. So it's more of an impact motive or a mission motive than anything else. Yeah, and I think that's where I think defense and industry have like this major disconnect because defense goes a lot of like industry days and they hire industry to help them with innovation, but like how they're tethered is it's completely different because. As we kind of said it, right? Like innovation very just like driven by, you know, that output, that value or whatever it may seem. But once again, we, we have a budget we have to constrain to, but at the end of the day, we don't have to justify its expense. What's interesting is I'm drawing more and more parallels between social impact and DOD applications of innovation as well, because they're generally indirect mission-based metrics for proving and qualifying if something is valuable or not valuable to do. So it's like, how many people can I affect? Or it, it comes down to a capability or a capacity change. So is my bandwidth improving to do more of something? Or am I just doing the same thing, but cheaper, faster, 
or whatever, is the swap of this better? You said you were working on something really interesting, kind of a thought or philosophy. And I wanted to get in on this because it makes me chuckle, but I know that there's a great story behind it as well. So the concept is that default laziness. It's very attuned to the topics we were previously talking about is DOD and industry relationships. In, in every organization, it's to blame. So the concept kind of originates from the need to outsource. Anytime a complex problem comes up, everyone's first reaction, especially in defense, is, well, let's find a contractor. Right? And large enterprises are the same way. They recognize they can't fast. So they find some subcontractor or some other entity to do their work. Um, and most notably, um, like I mentioned today, because I literally just heard this in a podcast from Ford's CEO, they were saying they have to go through 170 different vendors to do software updates to their cars. And what this screams to me is the concept of default laziness. I do not want to do that work. Ergo, I will outsource it, right? Now, the origination of this was for efficiency's sake. How does a organization or company get around these unique laws, fee system? Well, we'll outsource it to this organization that is framed to our same constraints, so we will do it. And that makes sense in logic, but it's become a part of business culture to outsource everything, right? Every company is now serverless, but really the server is just in a different part of the world. And now you've lost a element of your company to another company, which creates super companies like AWS and Google and, you know, all the major server companies that, you know, to be fair, probably would take down 75% of the world's companies if they were to go under. These like primes or super companies that we create by this culture of, oh, they can just do that. Or, hey, let's just outsource that has created a very interesting culture. And the example I kind of tether to is one I'm akin to is simple things we outsource. And to give a little bit more example of that, currently we're chasing XR in defense, right? How do we enhance our training with it? Making training is very simple as long as you have the experience and knowledge. And there's so many tools out there that have lowered the barrier to development and industries figured this out, right? We need a lot of tools to make stuff quickly and fast. And the tools are out there and some are free, you know, like Unity and Unreal and all these things you can access. You just need to train somebody to do it. Industry figured out we need more tools, but defense has figured out we just need more contractors when we have the capacity to do it. So people will not get past the ideal that they can do something because they're used to just hiring someone else to do it. And when we hire someone else to do it, we also build an office to manage hiring someone else to do it. The risk versus reward structure is kind of skewed. And it's just this revolving idea of believing you can't do something, so you must hire, essentially, or to summarize it. So I've been to some primes. I won't call anybody out, but they're very large companies and they don't, even at that level, they're essentially project management organizations. They just hire people like KForm or a software vendor or you know a hardware vendor. And so it's teams of engineers come together, build a product, and then it gets shipped off to a large contract manufacturer like Benchmark or JBill, and they, they own that product. But at the end of the day, not even the prime who's built that for someone like yourself 
or organization, no one owns the product. And so no one owns the knowledge of how this thing, why it was designed a certain way, what it can or really can't do, why those decisions were, were made. And so all that gets lost in the next iteration of the product. Because they're a prime and they've de-risked not knowing, that risk is passed on to the entity that they're working for because it's cost into the contract of doing it. So they're essentially figuring out how to make the same thing over and over and over again. You see this in defense electronic systems a lot, where even the same prime will have 20 different products that are basically the same thing, but they're not. And it's because they're there are lots of different divisions for different people, but then you know you could just go to their website and say like, why do you have five versions of the same thing? That would be like going to somebody's home and they have, you know, six Xboxes that are all basically the same Xbox, one to play each game, which ends up costing a lot of money. But yeah, and then someone on the customer side has to build an office, and then they manage those that relationship. But essentially, no one owns the problem long term, and no one owns the knowledge. So as far as like uh, knowledge management and then moving forward to find and solve like problems and the way that you would naturally innovate in a commercial sense would be like, okay, well, that was our beachhead customer. What's the next application so we can get some more mileage out of the same thing that we just solved for? That doesn't get baked into the solution as much. It's kind of interesting to see because I think more and more, there's no really reason for that. And I like the way that you've dubbed it as default laziness because outsourcing is a past generational idea, whereas our current generational idea is cross-team collaboration. So there is no set organization like you and I and another company and a prime contractor would all be on the same team. And instead of there being multiple tiers like you'd see in automotive, there's multiple owners that are all working together. And so there can be somebody over on the customer side that understands how everything works, or there's a customer side that is gathering up and, and building that knowledge share so you can move really quickly. But that is like an absolute new idea, even in the commercial sector is like, instead of hiring consultants, specialists all the way down from you know XYZ Prime or big company big tech company and then all the way down to some sub slash consultant is like all just working on the problem itself. It's kind of interesting because we have competing values because of it, because most engineers, software engineers, traditionally trained engineers, they're all moving and being trained formally into the path of um, end user design. So how do you achieve end user design if your default is to hire someone else to do it? Right. And, and the best example is uh, some of our most complex projects like building aircraft, right? How do you build everything to your end users when an end user like myself, right? Like a maintainer has to go through their supervision chain. Their supervision chain has to route something to the JPO, the joint program office or the program office because the program office is the only entity that can communicate with the prime and the prime has to communicate down to their tier two, tier three companies. At what point is your original message sustained and what world is that user design, right? When that tier three company, that's what they value because they're a smaller company and that's what they're about, especially in the realm of software. It's kind of a weird conversation to have. And we're really in what I define as the software age because hardware and physical technologies kind of I wouldn't 
say reach a stopping point, but a slowdown, right? They've kind of reached this point where it's too costly to advance. So what do we focus on? We work, we focus on data compression and then usefulness of data. Like how do we execute this with the minimum amount of resources so we can maintain our existing hardware infrastructure when before uh, hardware was iterating so fast as a software engineer, you could almost use as much memory without consequence. And, and now it's kind of inverted. And now we're like, okay, not only do we need to create a software that uses the least amount of memory and processing, but also appeases to human bias and expectations. We cannot achieve that if we're outsourcing everything. We need to have more owners in the chain that is willing to make change or advise on the change that needs to happen. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. You see this proliferation and even on the customer side, so on your side, people getting really interested in lean startup methodology. We had uh, Peter Newell on the show, uh, a couple other people for hacking for defense. So you see this interest in lean startup or design thinking and both of those methodologies, really any methodology that you take as an engineer, system designer of any flavor, yeah, they want you to talk to the user, the customer. You want to look at the whole value chain and do interviews and tests. And since that's not holistically possible, and in a lot of cases, the application is separate from the requirements and the specifications. So, we, you know, the application is is like something unknown or not easily divulge. So it is very difficult from that perspective, but I feel like that's getting better. But the idea of collaborating across versus just throwing it over the fence and saying like, we'll hire somebody to take care of this, you know, is a big shift. It requires a big shift in like security and how contracts are built and how needs are brought out to the market, all kinds of stuff. One of the demand signals I like to look at for a lot of innovations coming coming out the pipe from industry and defense, right? Like AI obviously is the hot topic, but the reason it's a hot topic is because of this problem we talk about is a lot of it defaults back to human communication. So we're literally innovating to solve just simply walking down to an office, two doors down and asking somebody what's up. And that's kind of what machine learning AI is the answer for, right? How do you passively collect data or infer what somebody meant without communicating with to solve your problem effectively when a simple communication could have answered it. But we create these systems of bureaucracy or barriers to process and efficiency gains or money or patents or whatever process gets in our way. So we're literally inventing solutions to bypass that through passive data collection, market analysts, and all these things because we can't reach our end users. And it's kind of a fascinating journey overall uh, between everything. I liked what you said about hardware and software because in this commercial world, they say software is eating hardware. And that was a big tagline, especially 15 years ago, to, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And now with the mass sensor systems and the data and really pushing into the AI applications. I have a really simple pitch for people is, hey, I make the thing that your software lives on. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. And, and so looking at hardware now isn't the thing. It is the enabler of the thing that we need. So it has to, in essence, be very adaptable and modular because I don't know if my computer is going to go on a 
UAV. I don't know if it's going to go underwater. I don't know if it's going to be stationary or on a person. And in a lot of cases, the answer is it will do all of those things or it could do all of those things. I don't know how it's going to communicate. And I don't know how much data I may or may be pushing. So is it 150 megs or is it 150 gigs, right? And the answer to all of those is usually, well, it could or it may be or Hardware has become a very interesting game as well because one, they're the extremes of low swaps, so like small things for the for the audience is like making really really small things that are easy to carry or easy to embed. That's been pushed into almost an absurdist level, and then for the high performance thing, you know, we're we're working on computers that if I told you five years ago what it was, you would lock me in jail because it's just so absurd what we can do and put in a little tiny case now. But at the end of the day, both of those systems are just to enable some type of data collection, some type of transport or transformation. There really, it isn't the thing. Even our radios aren't the thing, right? It's all softwares. Very interesting point to be made about like my perspective as I'm the physical product guy, right? So just reductively, I make things for software to live on. Oh, yeah. And I like the, the, that term, uh, software is eating hardware. I think, I think it's misguided, right? I think that's like, a, like a, a jab to say, hey, you know, the money's over here now. But I think it's because uh, we're finally to a point where the software industry can't use hardware anymore. It's it's finally to a point where, hey, I have to actually think about my memory allocations, you know, what my classes do when I execute them. Because a trend that I'm starting to see in the software world is we're starting to produce languages. They actually have concrete processes when you call a class or a function. Um, instead of it kind of going into the nether and you don't know what's going to happen, it's because we're kind of being held accountable now. It's like, hey, this hardware thing I made for you it has very limited capability because of all our constraints. Like you said, right? It has to go everywhere, be durable, it has to go Mach 6. You know, this is what we could do. So now you really have to think about how you need to design your software. And Tesla, as a company, has kind of figured out the constraints of that world. And they're actually one of the few I like to point to that has kind of cracked the code on that where they can develop software really well and they build their hardware to develop software, which I think is the missing piece that a lot of people don't consider because then it would make physical building so much easier. It's like, okay, we have to have these connectors and has to be okay. We have to have this kind of data bus and all that. It's this design. So I think again, that the term should be uh, software that is done of using hardware. I like that. Hey, Michael, before we go, do you have any parting words of wisdom to close us out for people that are looking to be innovators, whether it's entrepreneur innovators like yourself or people that are in the commercial world that want to get involved with people like yourself. At the end of the day, what makes you an innovator, especially in today's world is, and people say it a lot, is aligning passion. Find what matters the most to you in your life and then just use that as your inspiration for all your solutions. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce to all of it is finding that and just chasing it. And that's kind of what makes you an innovator in modern way, because everyone else kind of swims through life 
wanting to fall into a process so they can sit on the beach and drink mimosas. But if you find something that actually matters to you, that's a force multiplier. I love that. Thank you so much. My personal mission is just to make cool stuff. And so it's pretty simple. I think if I if I had sit on the beach money, I probably would be making cool stuff on the beach instead. Yeah. Find the <laughs> find the passion and follow that and see where it goes. And I think that's at the heart of innovation. So I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for your time on the show today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh yeah. Anytime. This has been the Startup Defense.